Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? Verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know. Now we live in the information age. And never before in history has the increase of knowledge been so rapid. For thousands of years of human history, we added knowledge. Today, we multiply knowledge. Knowledge used to double every several centuries. Today, it's every few months. And so so we are all traveling on the information highway at breakneck speeds. But you know, while our age is characterized by this dramatic increase in knowledge, one of the side effects is that today we know more about less. A hundred years ago, it was possible for a highly educated person to know everything about a field of knowledge. Today we have to specialize in smaller and smaller areas. We see that in the field of medicine. The doctor used to know everything there was to know about medical science. But today, no one can master in everything. And so we have specialists. We have neurosurgeons and vascular surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and ear, nose, and throat doctors and eye doctors and foot doctors. It is impossible today to be a know-it-all because all is now a very large word. But you know what's very ironic? Not only do we know more about less today, we also know less for certain. Because knowledge is not only increasing, it's changing. And today, with the ongoing research and new discoveries, some of the facts of the past are now fiction in the present. And that's led some today to the conclusion that truth is relative. That you can't really know anything for sure. And if you can't know for sure about the physical world, how could you possibly know for sure about the spiritual world? How could anybody know God? How could anybody know about eternity? How could anybody know for sure that they had eternal life? And beyond that, how could anybody really know that they know? in the spiritual realm? Well, that's the question John addresses in our passage this morning. In four short verses, he's going to tell us how we can know that we know God. I was listening to the radio the other day, and a commentator was talking with Moises Salou, the outfielder for the Houston Astros. And he asked him if he would give all of his possessions in the world if he could ask God one question. And Moises Alou said, yes. Now, I don't know what question Moises Alou would ask God, but I can't think of a more important question to be sure about the answer to than this one. Do you know that you know God? Because, you see, after that, everything else is trivial. In comparison. Now, if I brought somebody up on the stage today and I asked them, Are you a Christian? 
And they said, yes. And I said, well, when did you become a Christian? And they said, well, I've always been a Christian. And so I said, well, if you died today and went before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my perfect heaven, what would you say? And they say, because I believe in God and I'm doing the best I can and I'm trying to be a Christian. Now, would you accept that person's conclusion that they were a Christian? No. You see, a few things tip us off. When somebody says, I'm doing and I'm trying, it tells me that they're not a Christian. You see, I could wear a bell around my neck and live in a barn and crawl on all fours and eat hay, and I would be trying to be a cow. But I could not be a cow unless I was born a cow. And you cannot be a Christian unless you are born again. And that new birth doesn't happen by trying. It happens by faith. And John makes that clear in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So it's easy to tell when a person says, I've always been a Christian or I'm trying to be a Christian, that that person is not a Christian. But you know, sometimes people answer all my questions the right way. They say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe. They've got all the right answers, but I still have some big question marks in my mind. Do you ever experience that? I'm sure you do, because Jesus predicted that there would be people who would claim to be believers and actually be unbelievers. He called them tares in Matthew chapter 13, and he said they would grow together with the wheat until the harvest. Now, a tare is a weed that looks like part of the crop, but the difference is it doesn't bear any fruit. When I was in college, I spent one summer working for Davy Tree Company down in Hayti. We had a big spray truck, and it had a, a, a compressor, and it, and it had hoses coming out of it, and it had these, these things that looked like machine guns, and, and they would shoot a spray of chemicals like 30 yards on a line. And our assignment for the entire summer was to drive the state roads of the boot heel killing Johnson grass. Now, being a city boy, I had no idea what Johnson grass was. To me, it looked like something that belonged in a farmer's field. And so for the first few days, I was shooting everything but Johnson grass. I was shooting corn. I was shooting soybeans. Until finally my eye got trained to where I could pick out that Johnson grass. In fact, at the end of the summer, we would drive home from Hayti on the weekends, and I'd be driving down the interstate 55 miles an hour, and I was picking out Johnson grass on the side of the road because my eye was trained to do that. Now the question is, how do we do that in the spiritual realm? How do we distinguish the true from the false? How do we distinguish the wheat from the tare? How can I tell that someone who claims to have faith is genuine? Or better yet, let's make it personal. 
Because a lot of Christians struggle with doubt. How do I know that I really know him? How do I know that I really believe? You know, there are two forms of evidence given in Scripture to verify our faith. One is internal, the other is external. One is subjective, the other is objective. The internal is evident only to me. The external is evident to others. There's the internal evidence. John talks about that in chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. There is an internal witness for the believer that tells me that I'm a child of God. Now, we don't have time to go into this this morning, but take just a moment and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says this same thing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's that internal witness again. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit. Now, how does that happen? Well, look back at verse 15. It says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 3.11 tells me no one seeks after God. So before I'm a believer, I did not seek God. When I became a believer, one of the internal evidences to me that I'm a believer is that I am now seeking God. And I'm not calling him the good Lord or the man upstairs. I am calling him Abba, Dada. There's that internal evidence to me that I am now his child because my spirit is crying out, Daddy, to God. But then coming back to 1 John, there's also external evidence. And there are two tests that John gives in this book. One is the moral test, and the other is the social test. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, he gives us the moral test, that moral external test of how you can know that you know. Look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now that word know is a favorite word of John. He uses it 40 times in this letter. And here he says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we know him when we obey. Now be careful that you don't reverse this verse. It doesn't say we come to know God by obedience. That's the mistake Martin Luther made as an Augustinian monk. He tried to obey in order to come to know God. And he sincerely tried that for years. He beat himself, he fasted, he observed every ritual imaginable. And then he came to those joyful words that Paul wrote in the book of Romans, the just shall live by faith. And he came to life in Christ and lived the rest of his life in real obedience to God. You see, obedience is not the means of knowing God, but it is the product of knowing God. And it's the evidence to me and it's the evidence to others around me that I have really come to know Him. That's the moral test. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth 
Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as who? Lord. Now, if he is Lord, what's that make me? That makes me his subject. That makes me his servant. And that means I obey. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 10, Paul is giving his testimony. And he says, I was on the Damascus road and there was this great light. And he says, I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And Paul said, Lord, what will you have me to do? You see, that's the response of genuine faith. You're the Lord. What do you want me to do? Because it's always followed by obedience. Unbelievers are referred to in Ephesians 2.2 as the sons of disobedience. Believers, in contrast, are referred to in 1 Peter 1.14 as the children of obedience. You say, well, what about the guy who says he believes, but he's off continuing to live his life in disobedience? Well, that's verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The fellow who says the right things, who makes the right claims, who answers the right questions, but his life is unchanged, John says, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He doesn't know God. Very firm verse. No spiritual experience is valid if there are no moral consequences. Paul, speaking about this same group in Titus 1.16, said they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. The dairymen put it this way, they preach cream, but they live skimmed milk. Now, it's not presumptuous to say, I know God but it is presumptuous to say I know God when my claim is contradicted by my conduct. Jesus put it very bluntly in John 6, 46. He said, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's the height of contradiction to claim that I know God, but to then say, but I don't obey Him. See, John says that obedience is the very evidence that you're a child of God because Christians obey. You say, well, Dan, this sounds a little bit like legalism. I mean, we've got to keep his commandments. Well, look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. You see, obedience is simply the expression of our love. Love is the motivation for our obedience to God. You sit around and say, well, God, how can I show you that I love you? Here's the answer. You obey him. Listen to some of the words Jesus said that John recorded in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You see, our love is expressed through our obedience. 
Look with me real quickly at John 21. Peter had denied the Lord three times, and Jesus met up with him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in John 21. And in verse 15, Jesus asked Peter the question, Do you love me? And Peter said, Yes. And then verse 16, Do you love me? And Peter said, Yes. And verse 17, Do you love me? And Peter said, Yes. And then in verse 18, he says, When you get older, somebody's going to take you where you don't want to go and stretch out your hands. And verse 19 says he was telling him what kind of death he would glorify God. And then the end of verse 19, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. All right, here's what it's going to cost you. Now follow me. And in verse 20 and 21, Peter turns around and says, Well, what about John? And Jesus says, You forget about John, and you follow me. Do you love me? Then you'll follow me. Obedience is the expression of our love. Now, there's a law in the state of Missouri that says that you have to care for your children. And part of that care is feeding them. Now, how many people here feed your kids because it's the law? A few hands. How many of you feed your kids because if you don't, they're going to lock you up? You see, you don't feed your kids because you're driven by law. You feed your kids because you're driven by love. You would feed them if there was no law. And that's what John is telling us. We are driven by love to say, God, I want to obey you. God, I want to keep your word. God, I want to obey your commandments. It's a love-driven thing. And then to help us understand how our obedience is to be expressed, John restates this moral test in a little different way. At the end of verse 5, he says, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now he makes it a lot more personal. Now he gives us a pattern. He says, if, if you say you abide in him, then you ought to walk like he walked. Now how did Jesus walk? You say, well, he walked on water. Well, let's make it more practical than that. Let's think for a minute about the kinds of things that characterized Jesus' walk. The popular bracelet today asks the question, what would Jesus do? That's an important question. If we're going to talk about the characteristics of Jesus' walk, that would be a series that would never end. But I simply want to highlight five things that I see that characterize Jesus' walk. If you're going to walk like Jesus, these are five things that need to be characterized in your life and growing and developing in your life. Number one is compassion. As Jesus was going throughout the cities and villages of Galilee, Matthew 9, 36 captures his heart attitude. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion by the suffering of others. He was compassionate. 
That's maybe best illustrated in the way he dealt with lepers. You know, in the first century, leprosy was the most feared of all diseases. In fact, Leviticus 14 prescribes that if leprosy was found in a house, they were to dismantle the house brick by brick and timber by timber, and everything was taken out of the city and dumped. And the leper himself was not treated a whole lot better than that. He was sent outside the city where the dumps and the refuge pits were. And if anyone came near to him, he was required to cover his mouth and shout, Unclean! Unclean! One thing you could be sure of when you saw a leper was that he had not been touched in a long, long time because people went out of their way to stay away from him. But in Mark 1.41, when a leper came to Jesus, here was his response. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Now Jesus could have healed him with a word, but Jesus felt compassion and touched this man who had not been touched in so long. So you see, if you're going to walk like Jesus walked, you're going to have to be moved with compassion. And today there are many physical and spiritual lepers in this world. There are many untouchables in this world who need Christians who will be Jesus to them. Second characteristic of Jesus' walk is self-denial. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And he describes that attitude in several phrases in that passage. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He put the interests of others ahead of his own personal interests. If I was going to sum up that attitude in one word, it would be self-denial. When Jesus left heaven to come into this world at his birth, it was an act of self-denial. He emptied himself of the glory of heaven to become a man. When Jesus walked through this world, every step was an act of self-denial. He put it this way in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And when Jesus went to the cross, it was the ultimate act of self-denial. He gave up his very life. And now he says to you and me in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we are going to walk in the steps of Jesus, the needs of others are going to have to become more important to us than our own needs. Because what is the opposite of self-denial? Well, it's self-centeredness. And self-centeredness moves us to ignore the needs of others rather than than embrace the needs of others. Self-centeredness leads us to judge others rather than serve others. And when that happens, we are not following in the steps of Jesus. We are not walking like Jesus walked. Walking like Jesus walked involves a sustained willingness to say no to myself and yes to God. John the Baptist put it this way, He must increase, but I 
must decrease. You see, the more you walk with Jesus, the smaller you get. A father and his son were walking down a street in Chicago past a place where a skyscraper was being constructed. Glancing up, they saw men working on one of the highest stories of the building. The little boy said, Dad, what are those little boys doing up there? And his dad said, Son, those aren't little boys. Those are grown men. And the little boy said, But why do they look so small? And his father answered, Because they're so high. And the little boy thought for a moment and said, Then, Dad, when they get to heaven, there won't be anything left of them. Well, that's true. The closer we get to heaven the smaller we become. Because to walk like Jesus involves self-denial. Third characteristic is commitment. Listen to the words of Jesus that John recorded in his gospel. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My whole appetite, the thing I desire like you desire food, is to do the will of my Father, Jesus said. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The all-consuming focus of Jesus' life was to obey and please his Father. And where did he draw the line in that obedience? Philippians 2.8 says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, there was no line. He was totally committed. And so if you're going to walk like Jesus walked, your life will be marked by commitment to the will of God. Home Life magazine once told the story of an elderly lady by the name of Aunt Addie who lived during the days of the Civil War. She lived in the South and loved it very deeply, and one day the Union Army appeared coming down the road toward her house. No one in the family moved except Aunt Addie. Upon seeing what she called Yankees coming down the road, she ran into the house, grabbed a red-hot poker from the fireplace, then ran out into the road where she stood waving her poker defiantly at the advancing army. Her concerned family called, Come back, Aunt Addie, come back. You can't whip the Yankee army with only a poker. And continuing her stand, she called back, Maybe not, but at least they'll know which side I'm on. Do people know which side you're on? You see, walking like Jesus means commitment no matter what the cost. Fourth characteristic is dependence. Before he chose the 12 disciples, Jesus spent the night in prayer. Mark 1.35 says, While it was still dark, he arose and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. 
Luke 5.16 says Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In fact, he prayed so often that the disciples finally asked him in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, what is prayer? Well, prayer is simply an expression of our dependence upon God. When I pray, I'm saying, God, I need you. When I don't pray, I'm saying, God, I can handle this myself. If you are walking with Jesus, then you will spend a great deal of time on your knees. Statisticians tell us that by the time our lives are over, on average, we will have spent six months at stoplights, eight months opening junk mail, a year and a half looking for lost stuff, and five years standing in lines. I wonder how much time you will have spent in prayer expressing your dependence upon God. fifth characteristic is a positive perspective. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed or happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are persecuted. Now Jesus didn't say those things because he was oblivious to the bad things in the world. He said them because he was not limited by the bad things in the world. He was able to see good in the bad around him. He was able to see purpose in the pain that he endured. Of the 98 words he spoke on the night of his arrest, 30 of them had to do with the purpose of God. He had a positive perspective. And you should have a positive perspective as well no matter what happens. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes all things to work together for good. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Joylessness is sin. And it's a sin that too many Christians are too prone to fall into. And it's a sin that we tend to tolerate too readily today. There is a being in this universe who wants you to be sad, and it's not God. Francis de Sales wrote, The evil one is pleased with sadness and melancholy because he himself is sad and melancholy and will be so for all eternity. Hence, he desires that everyone should be like him. When we are negative and joyless, we are not being like Jesus. We are being the very opposite. So what are the things that mark Jesus' walk? Compassion, self-denial, commitment, dependence, and a positive perspective. Max Lucado recently wrote a book entitled, Just Like Jesus, 
want you to listen to what he says. What if for one day Jesus were to become you? What if for 24 hours Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, lives in your house, assumes your schedule? Your boss becomes his boss, your mother becomes his mother, your pains become his pains. With one exception, nothing about your life changes. Your health doesn't change, your circumstances don't change, your schedule isn't altered, your problems aren't solved. Only one change occurs. What if for one day and one night, Jesus lives your life with his heart? Your heart gets the day off, and your life is led by the heart of Christ. His priorities govern your actions. His passions drive your decisions. His love directs your behavior. What would you be like? Would people notice a change? Your family, would they see something new? Your co-workers, would they sense a difference? What about the less fortunate? Would you treat them the same? And your friends, would they detect more joy? How about your enemies? Would they receive more mercy from Christ's heart than from yours? And you, how would you feel? What alterations would this transplant have on your stress level, your mood swings, your temper? Would you sleep better? Would you see sunsets differently, death differently, taxes differently? Any chance you'd need fewer aspirin or sedatives? How about your reaction to traffic delays? Would you still dread what you were dreading? Would you still do what you were doing? Would you still do what you plan to do for the next 24 hours? Pause and think about your schedule. Obligations, engagements, outings, appointments. With Jesus taking over your heart, would anything change? Keep working on this image. Think of yourself living just as Jesus would. And as you get that image into focus, realize that this is what God wants. Philippians 2.5 says that he wants you and me to think and act like Christ Jesus. You see, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Now, I know what you're probably thinking about now. You're thinking, doing what Jesus would do is too much for me. I can't keep up with his steps. So let me offer you this word of encouragement. The Christian life is not first and foremost imitation. It's first and foremost habitation. See, the Christian life is an exchanged life. His life for mine. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, you don't start the imitation until you first have the habitation that he lives inside of you. I was over at uh, Waylon and Darla Beller's house, and someone who was there with me said, you know, I was in this house before, and, and there was a wall here. 
and, and the colors were different and the cabinets weren't there. And they went on and on to describe how much this house had changed. And they were simply saying that when you get a new owner in a house, that owner changes things. Well, you see, if you know God by faith in Jesus Christ, then he moves into your life and takes up residence in your life. And guess what? He changes things. He gives you a new code of conduct, obedience. And he gives you a new walk like Jesus. And John says, that's how you know that you know. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up as we close the service today. Maybe there's somebody here and and you have no capacity for imitation because you haven't yet had the habitation of God in your life. Maybe Jesus hasn't changed anything in you because he's not the owner yet. Maybe he hasn't changed anything in you because he hasn't yet occupied your life. I'm going to give you the opportunity as the praise team leads us in this song to come forward today and say, Lord, I want you to take over my life. I want you to come and live in me. Maybe you're here as a Christian and you've been holding back and you want to say, Lord, I want to give you everything today. You come as well as we sing. I'm going to ask uh, those that were baptized today to come as well, and there may be some who want to join this congregation. You come as we sing also.